Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to ask the Mayo Mom. Today we'll look at kids going back to school, what parents need to know about masking, and the precautions families should take to keep people safe in school. I think we're going to try and do the best that we can, and I think that families will too as well, to try and layer on top of layer of the different mitigation strategies so that we can keep our kids in school, because I think the thing that we saw last year is that everybody wants our kids back in school. We'll also hear from Mayo Clinic experts on COVID-19, the Delta variant, and the importance of keeping kids healthy with up-to-date vaccinations. Kids under 12 are not yet eligible for COVID-19 vaccination, but we have seen them fall behind on their other routine childhood immunizations. And so um, I would really encourage uh, parents to talk to their primary care, care provider and make sure that their child is up to date on all their other routine vaccinations before they're looking at returning back to school. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Mackey and welcome to Ask the Mayo Mom on Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Today, we are once again discussing COVID-19, and the U.S. has now entered its fourth surge due to the Delta variant spread. Children across the U.S. are returning to school during the same time, and this has created many questions for families, including my own, that we plan to address today. We have three guests joining us. Our first guest, Dr. Nipuni Rajapaksi, is a pediatric infectious disease physician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Our next guest, Dr. Emily Levy, is a dual certified pediatric critical care and pediatric infectious disease physician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. She also represents pediatrics on the Mayo Clinic Infection Control and Prevention Committee. Our last guest is Dr. Chad Schrader. He is the principal at Washington Elementary School in Rochester Public School District. Mr. Schrader brings a wealth of experience as he enters his 24th year in education, 16th year in administration, and eighth year at Washington Elementary. And we are excited he can join us today to share his wealth of knowledge, helping children prepare for the school year. Mr. Schrader, thank you so much for joining us today. I know this is a pretty busy time of year for you with the return of students upcoming. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And Dr. Rajapaksi, Dr. Levy, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. Dr. Rajapaksi, thank you, Emily, or Dr. Levy. Dr. Rajapaksi, there has been a lot of changes uh, with COVID-19 since we last talked. What is the current situation with the number of COVID-19 cases currently in children in the United States? Thanks, Dr. Mackey. So that's a a great question, because since we last met, um, as you mentioned, there's been been many changes that have happened. Um, Obviously, we've had rollout of vaccination, but I would say currently the the biggest issue that we're facing is circulation of the Delta variant of COVID-19. So this variant is now making up more than 90 to 95% of of cases within uh, the country. And this has led to a few different challenges. Um, When we look at the pediatric population, um, we are seeing right now some of the highest numbers of hospitalizations. Um, across the country, but uh, primarily in the southern part of the country, um, higher than we have seen at other points during this pandemic. So it's certainly very concerning. Um, We're seeing in general higher hospitalization rates amongst people under 50 as well. And that was um, based on some recently released CDC data. Um, Some areas in the south have been reporting uh, running out of intensive care unit beds, both adult and pediatric, um, and needing to transfer patients outside of of their state because they're running out of capacity to provide care. So really a a crisis situation in in many areas right now. Um, As of August 12th of this year, there's been uh, just over 4.4 million children who have tested positive for COVID-19 during the pandemic. Um, And the 
in the uh, prior week, uh, there was 121,000 new cases. So these are really high numbers. Um, we had seen kind of until June um, rates seeming to come down quite nicely. And then from July onwards, we've seen an increase. Um, we've also seen ongoing reports of cases of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. So this is a, a rare complication, but can be serious and life-threatening um, after a child has had COVID-19 infection. And um, currently, there is just over uh, 4,400 cases that have been reported in the United States, and unfortunately, uh, around 37 deaths of children from that syndrome as well. Adding kind of additional challenges on top of COVID-19 is the fact that we're seeing circulation of other respiratory viruses in the communities now, um, kind of at an unusual time. So one example is a virus called RSV or respiratory syncytial virus that um, really causes most issues for kids under a year of age, um, elderly patients and immunocompromised patients. And usually we see it circulate in the wintertime, but this year we've seen increased cases over the summer. And so that's adding some additional um, stress because uh, some of these children end up needing to be admitted to hospital and ICU as well. So um, definitely a really concerning time in the in the pandemic, um, especially for our pediatric um, age groups. And we'll talk a bit more about Delta variant and, and why we're seeing some of these trends as well, I think, later on. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great segue. My question for you, and I think I'm hearing it from a lot of families is, is this, do we know if the Delta variant is causing more severe infections in children in teens, or is it just that we're starting to see more infections in kids because many of this population aren't able to be vaccinated? So right now, um, there's no vaccine that's been authorized for use in our kids under 12 years of age. So certainly that is uh, contributing. They have not benefited from the personal protection that getting a vaccine um, gives you. Um, what we know about Delta for sure is that it is more contagious than the prior variants that we've seen, um, about two times more contagious. And so it's spread much more easily from person to person. Um, there have been some studies that have uh, suggested that uh, you might have a higher likelihood of being admitted to hospital if you get infected with Delta variant, um, but we are still waiting for a kind of more definitive information on that. Um, because we're seeing such high numbers of people uh, admitted, uh, people infected, especially kids, proportionally that results in more people winding up in hospital. And so it's a little bit challenging to, to tease out just the significant increase in numbers of people getting infected and how that relates to how many people are landing in hospital, but definitely something that people are working to understand um, better. Um, we are still seeing that most infections um, with this variant are occurring in unvaccinated uh, people, and they continue to be at much higher risk for ending up uh, in hospital or with more severe illness. So really everyone over 12 years of age were strongly encouraging to go out and get vaccinated because that is really going to give you your best protection from ending up in hospital with this infection. Um, we have also been learning that uh, breakthrough infections, so people who have gotten vaccinated um, are possible. Most of these people will have um, either asymptomatic or, or mild symptoms, um, but some people have had to be hospitalized with breakthrough infection as well. And we do know now that uh, they are able to transmit the infection to others, even if their symptoms are mild or they have no symptoms at all. And so that's where we've seen uh, the return to masking uh, come back, uh, even if you are vaccinated uh, to help to further uh, protect uh, ourselves and people in our community, um, even with the vaccine on board. You know, what I think you just alluded to um kind of uh, explains a question that an audience question that just came through. Um, people I hear a lot are, why not just get infected and have natural immunity as opposed to getting the vaccination? Yeah, so this is a question that has been coming up 
quite commonly. We do know that um, for some period of time after you get natural infection, you probably have some protection. Um, but when we look at how long that lasts, it's still not very clear. And it likely depends uh, on the individual, on their immune system, um, when they were infected, uh, a whole bunch of different factors. And so um, vaccine-related immunity uh, seems to be more durable, probably lasts longer, um, seems to be a bit more specific. Um, and so that's why even if you have had infection before, we're still recommending you get vaccinated. And we know that people who have had infection and then gotten vaccine develop really nice high antibody levels that provide them with really good protection. Um, and so uh, that's still the recommendation. Um, and we're still working to understand how long even vaccine-related immunity lasts. Um, we've recently seen a recommendation for third dose of vaccine uh, initially for uh, immunocompromised patients or patients with weakened immune systems, um, and now probably more generally um, in the population starting uh, later on this fall. Um, and so definitely we know that the vaccine uh, is the most highly protective for serious illness and hospitalization from this infection. And so uh, very much recommended for anyone over 12 years of age. Great. Thank you. All right, Dr. Levy, I think there's been a lot of questions about uh, the Delta virus and, or the Delta strain. Has there been a change in the mode of transmission compared to earlier strains of COVID-19 that were circulating last year? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so coronaviruses of all types are thought to have similar types of transmission, and that includes community coronaviruses that we saw before SARS-CoV-2, as well as all of the strains or variants of SARS-CoV-2. That transmission in infection control speak is also often called droplet transmission. But what that means is that the droplets hang in the air and you can breathe them. So the transmission is the same. It's different sizes, many sizes of infectious particles that are in the air that people are breathing in. And that transmission has been um, what we've seen from um, much of the evidence throughout the pandemic, as well as evidence before the pandemic for respiratory illnesses uh, sustained across all types of coronaviruses. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. So now we've really got kind of a baseline knowledge about where we're at with the, the Delta variant spread across the United States. Let's move on to shifting to talking about children going back to school. So Mr. Schrader, do you have any questions or any, excuse me, suggestions for parents to really help their child adjust to school, especially during the time of COVID-19? You know, we're still kind of in a, a the situation pandemic that we were in last year, but we're starting at the, at the beginning of a school year when a surge is occurring. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Madke. First of all, thank you for allowing me to be a part of this very important discussion by all means. I don't have all the answers, but only suggestions from a school perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I'm one of many administrators in Rochester, but as a principal of Washington, I'd be happy to share some insights with you. But it may sound so simple, but practice is probably the biggest thing for that I can think of. Practice waking up um, at the time you normally would for a typical school day, run through the routines and take a visit to the school if possible, walk around the school of the building um, and have conversations with your child about what to potentially expect, you know, the, the thing that's probably the scariest for kids is the unknown, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the unknown of this, this virus, the unknown of, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen and the predictability of that. And so if we can help alleviate some of that unpredictability and unknown events, uh, the better students will be in adjusting back to school routines in both at home and at school. 
Absolutely. You know, there's a, a, some, a small subset of children who have been experiencing higher levels of anxiety at school in general or, or developing school anxiety or even school refusal as they return to school, especially if they were previously in a distance learning model. Um, what can parents do to support these children that may have higher levels of anxiety going back to school in an in-person setting? Last year, uh, the Rochester Public School organized monthly Google Meets with families from all schools to provide relevant and easy things to implement, um, ideas that assist students through these very challenging times. The folks that led these monthly meetings uh, were either experts from within our school district or our community partners. But um, the second thing that I wanted to just highlight too is most of our elementary schools within Rochester have implemented what's called Steps into Learning. Uh, what this is, for those unfamiliar to Rochester, uh, we designate the first two days of the school year to face-to-face, -to -face, um, and if families want, virtual um, option two as well, but a 30-minute conference with the family and their classroom teacher. Uh, this is a great time to meet, discuss expectations, share any concerns that may impact their child's social-emotional well-being, and any and for that matter, develop any plans for the start of the school year. And if time allows, teachers may administer some short assessments while parents complete the paperwork so that teachers can then get a jump start on where their students are academically. But it also just gives an opportunity for um, families and kids to be in the building um, before the start of the school day. Sometimes, you know, it's not just the kids that have that uh, anxiety. It's some of the families that the family members that do too, that they're sending their kid to a, a building maybe that, that they haven't been in ever or that they haven't been in for a year and a half to two years. And so this is a great way. And this, the steps into learning is something that we had prior to um, COVID, but it's kind of been a blessing in disguise to, to now have this in place for most of our kids and most of our buildings to kind of ease that transition back into school to lessen that anxiety for both our, our kids and, and for our staff as well as our family members too. All right, so Dr. Levy, question for you. So now we're talking about kids back in schools. Um, should children and school staff, um, would masking be a benefit for them regardless of their vaccination status or should just children and, and staff who aren't vaccinated um, be masking? Yeah, um, great question. As Dr. Roger Poxy said earlier, we're unfortunately seeing infection and transmission of uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, even from vaccinated or asymptomatic patients at this point. And so although vaccination remains protective against severe disease and hospitalization and is highly protective against those things, we're seeing that it's not protective against transmission. So that is, you can have a child who's asymptomatic, doesn't even know they have COVID-19 and is well themselves, who could still transmit COVID-19 to another child. And so both real world experience and scientific studies have shown that universal masking reduces transmission. And at this time, the CDC is recommending masking of children over age two indoors. Excellent. You know, a lot of families have had questions about what type of masks are protective and which ones they should be using. Um, there's been some questions about are cloth masks protective only for a certain time, or should children be looking at things like the KN95 masks? Yeah, those are good questions um, and reasonable for folks who are concerned in trying to protect their child. There is a great resource on the CDC about face coverings, recommending when to wash face coverings and the most appropriate face coverings. So I'd recommend um, folks take a look at that. But in general, we recommend a double layered 
size, uh, a double layered mask. So that could be a cloth double layered mask or a medical grade mask that's child size. Most medical grade masks have double layers. Um, KN95s or N95s are um, a type of mask that removes particles from the air and that are sometimes called respirators. They filter out very, very small particles from the air. N95s are designed for healthcare workers. Um, they've never been tested for safety in children or smaller size faces, and they also haven't been fit tested in children, um, which is a term that healthcare workers use for testing the fit of N95s and whether it seals safely and effectively around the face. Um, and N95s are not required for healthcare workers caring for COVID-19 patients. So I myself take care of patients in the hospital with COVID-19 wearing what we, one would term a simple or surgical medical mask. So at this time, there's no evidence that children in school would require an N95. And we also don't know if N95s are safe, especially for smaller children with smaller facial structures. Excellent. How about when should children be wearing um, masks in school? Do they need to wear them just indoors, outdoors, both? Or are we still kind of getting more information on this? Yeah, so in general, the CDC recommends um, universal masking indoors. Um, for, for folks who are over two years old, as I mentioned before. Um, this is part of a strategy called layering, which involves protecting against transmission through multiple ways. And those ways are things like social distancing, vaccinating everyone who can be vaccinated, ensuring really good ventilation, contact tracing. So outdoors, you have often that layer of social distancing and ventilation. And in that setting, it's less um, important for folks to mask to prevent transmission. Excellent. Mr. Schrader, there has um, been a lot of concerns among parents about wearing masks, um, especially at the start of COVID-19 when kids were returning to in-person school. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience? How did you feel that the kids did at your school wearing masks? Um, and did, did, they, did some kids really struggle with this or did the majority of kids do pretty well? Yeah, to be extremely honest, the students I witnessed last year, um, last year and a half, were were fantastic. Okay, uh, students were very responsible and resilient in wearing masks. Yes, it, you know, there's at times where we have to remind students, you know, at times to pull them up to cover both the, their their nose and their mouth. But right. all students understood and were very respectful in following that expectation. I believe as adults, you know, we we can help decide how students will react with with mask wearing by our own actions and comments around the topic. Um, you know, students feed off of the adult energy that is around them. So if we can remain positive and students, you know, tend to fall in line with that. And to be honest, yes, um, I've had conversations with students about mask wearing and at times I've, I've said to students, geez, you know, wearing these masks can be bothersome, uncomfortable or annoying at times. Mm -hmm. But if we all do our part, we can keep ourselves and other people safe and most importantly in school um, with our kids. Yeah, really creating that sense of community. It seems to be really effective with children. Um, they know they all have their role and they're all working together for a common goal and a common good to keep everyone healthy seems to be a really good message. Um, and I know that you've done that um, in, in your school as well. Is, do you have any, any tips for parents of, of other things that they can do to help pr prepare their child to wear that mask during the school day and what it might look like if there'll be break times for them to take the mask off? Yeah, I, you know, the thing that we, I would suggest to, to parents is focus on what we know and what we can control. Uh, spend time listening to what they're excited about, what makes them nervous, uh, 
provide reinsurance that they, you know, that we will get through this together. I think the last, you know, family session and that link that I sent, it really talks a little bit about ways that you can build um, routines. I think it was the title of that, that session was called Critical Routines and Child-Centered Connections. Um, that, that link that I was shared would be beneficial to those families interested in supporting their children and coming back to school. Excellent. Yeah, routines are so vital. Um, and, and when kids don't know what to expect, that's when we see anxiety increasing uh, and the fear of the unknown. So if they have a routine and they know what to expect, um, that we really see that come down. And it's normal for all kids to be a little excited and a little bit nervous, maybe on that first couple days of school. Um, <laughs> is that what you tend to see in the school setting as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the nervous thing, and to be honest with you, the adults have that too, um, mm -hmm. staff, even if it's in your you know, first, fifth, 10th, 25th year, you always get that kind of butterfly feeling in your, your stomach about that. But um, I think the, the more we can have conversations, the more we can, you know, reassure kids, uh, the better they will be. And I think just practicing it. And, you know, you mentioned about the, the breaks with the masks as of right now, currently, you know, in our, in our district, we have where students will be wearing masks in buildings and on transportation as of right now outside when they're at recess, they um, won't have to wear it because they're outside. Um, but again, that could change, you know, in a moment's notice too as well. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Um, Rajapaksi, Dr. Levy had talked about like different levels of layering to kind of help protect children in the school setting and help protect adults even um, as well. One of those level or modes of layering would be including cleaning of services and hand washing to really help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, this was something that was talked a lot about in the beginning and people were even like sanitizing food they bought and, and things. Is that something that we should still be concerned about? Um, or is this less likely a mode of transmission of, of COVID-19 Delta variant? Yeah, so transmission from surfaces um, is not a major way that COVID-19 is spread from person to person. Um, it is uh, theoretically possible. Um, and so that's why we recommend hand washing as one of the layered preventative strategies. The really important thing to recognize though is that hand washing prevents so many different types of infections. So while we're spending a lot of time talking about COVID-19 today, um, there's lots of other respiratory viruses or stomach flu viruses that <laughs> circulate um, in schools and childcare settings and hand washing is one of the best things you can do to prevent many of those as well. So uh, definitely in combination with all these other measures a really important one um, to remember and um, especially uh, for kids to make sure that they understand how to how to do it properly, um, that they have to wash their hands for 20 to 30 seconds, and making sure that they have um, easily accessible um, facilities to to wash their hands or at least easy access to things like hand sanitizer, um, and understand when when the times are that they need to to use those because it'll help with COVID-19, but also with lots of other different types of infections and and spread of infections in the school setting. Um, among children who have special health care needs. Um, Tolerating a mask or a face covering may be challenging for them. Um, and this uh, audience member is wondering if you have any guidance to help really build up the tolerance for children to be able to tolerate these um, face coverings and masks. Yeah, that's a great question. And in, in our building, we have we have a couple programs where we have some intensive programs that have kids that have some some difficulties doing that. But um, the more that we practice and the more that we kind of I'm going to come back to that practice theme of, of when we talk to families, if you can practice wearing that and building up that, um, you know, 
building up the 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 ability to to wear those masks at long periods of time, I think is probably um, going to help. Obviously, they don't have to wear it the entire day because there's breaks throughout the day that they're going to be able to have. And if we can talk to them and communicate with them about when those breaks are, um, the more positive they are about wearing those masks. So I think I think the biggest thing for for parents is to practice before you know putting that mask on, get comfortable with the masks that kids feel that are the, the most um, beneficial to them, I think will help them in the end. Mm-hmm. Some school districts across the United States have already started school. So many school districts will still be starting. So there's still time where they can start practicing. Would you recommend like a couple minutes a day start and then kind of building their way up to, to longer periods of time? I've seen some examples of this on the internet for families um, with children with special health care needs. Yeah, I think the tolerance, building up that tolerance over a period of time is is obviously beneficial. I mean, we're, we're down to the countdown here with, you know, a little over two weeks left, but I mm-hmm. think there's still plenty of time that you could build it up every single day and then and talk about, you know, a plan of when you when you can take it off and when you can't and, and build that uh, tolerance up. Okay. Great. Dr. Mapke, I would, I would agree. Um, and I would add that one of um, the things that we emphasize for kids wearing masks is that they do need to be able to safely take it off. So for mm-hmm. children with uh, neurodevelopmental disabilities, there may be other strategies that should be employed for that kind of layering if they're not able to take their mask off. But it can be ha- hard for all all children to learn how to wear kind of these simple double layer masks. And so that's why it's likely most effective and safe to em- emphasize pr- consistent and correct masking with a regular mask that has double layers, practicing covering both the nose and the mouth with something that's consistent over time, rather than um, kind of trying out a variety of different types of masks and methods. Yeah, and I was gonna also add, I know everyone is excited about their brand new first day back to school outfits that I wouldn't (laughs) recommend a brand new first day back to school mask. I would use something that they've have been have worn before are comfortable wearing and you know that they can can tolerate keeping on for for as long as they need to. I love that recommendation. What about for children who are less than age two and are are unable to mask safely? Is there any strategies that you would recommend to really help reduce their risk of transmission? So I think for for the age group um, under age two that can't mask, um, this is where things like uh, distancing comes into play, especially. So um, if uh, trying to keep them away from obviously anyone who is obviously ill or unmasked um, and depending on that um, physical distance over which uh, droplets uh, don't often travel very well uh, can be additionally protective for that age group. Um, I know in some settings, for example, if a, a baby's in a car seat and you drape something over the the car seat to act as a barrier um, that can be helpful, especially if you're going into healthcare settings or something like that. But um, uh, distancing is really what comes into play for for that age group. Absolutely, I would agree. And this is still a layering technique for those around the child as well. So this is where it becomes really important for the adults caring for the child to be vaccinated and to be following the other layering strategies when they're out in the community with the child or when they're um, not out in the community. Um, Obviously, we don't recommend that parents are distancing from their own child, but I'm talking about taking those methods when they're out away from the child to to um, when they come back, um, be less likely to transmit SARS-CoV-2. And for caregivers for children under two, um, this is where it's important that they're also kind of using those layering strategies, including vaccination and masking themselves. 
Excellent. Um, Mr. Schrader, I have a, a question for you. How do you recommend that parents uh, that want to help support um, the school personnel and teachers do that? Um, should they reach out to their schools or, there, or are there other methods that you would recommend that they approach this? As far as masking? or is Just partnering with their schools during COVID-19. Is there any things that you feel that teachers and school staff really need to help support them? Yeah, no, I, I just think asking questions, being in contact with their classroom teacher, and, and just remember to love your, I know this sounds simple, but love your children unconditionally. Um, I know there's a lot of things that this pandemic has taught us, um, but it really has taught us to focus on the priorities of, you know, relationships with students to students, students to adults and adults to adults, given the fact that we have to still, you know, continue to social distance, which is still a difficult thing to do in schools. Um, but I think that if we can just focus on the individual and, and continue to have those conversations and listen to your children and um, kids have a lot to say and, and they can give us a unique perspective. So if we just sit and listen and, and love them conditionally, I think you'll learn a lot. Excellent. Um, we have lots of questions about um, COVID transmission in schools and what to do if they develop symptoms. So let's go through a couple of those. Um, what are the recommendations during lunchtime for, for kids? How far should they be distanced when their masks are off when they're eating? Is that is that question for me? Or for you, that... yeah. What are, what are you guys going to be doing in your schools? And then yeah. um, Dr. Levy and Dr. Rajapaksi, if you guys have anything to add. I think our recommendation that we've seen is, you know, obviously the the three, at least three feet of distance, especially when they're unmasked and they're eating and and not facing uh, face to face. If they're if they have to be, you know, facing in all the same direction, that's probably the best. Um, but what we've seen too is also some unique opportunities where we can face kind of in a W style where they're kind of off centered from one another to create more space in, in our areas for kids to eat. But again, um, one of the recommendations is at least three feet. Um, away and uh, facing the same direction. Well, the um, eating outside, is that a possibility? That's something that will be pursued, do you think, in schools? Yeah, I mean, there, there are schools in our district that have um, gone to the point where they've uh, fundraised to, to have picnic tables uh, positioned all around their buildings so that they have kids and adults that are eating outside. And we tend to do that too, as well as, you know, in the state of Minnesota, sometimes you never know when you can, you can eat outside. And obviously in November, December, January, and February, and that, that tends to not really be the case. But um, obviously, our, our falls and springs are, are great times in Minnesota, and we can we can take advantage of that eating outside too as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, another you know strategy that some are employing is cohorting, um, so having the same children eat together um, every day. It's a little. Um, sad in terms of kids getting to social network with other kids, but we know that if you're unmasked around the same smaller group of people, there's less likely to be transmissions between those small groups. So some schools are using uh, that method as well. Um, I know there's been some um, districts, some states um, that have recommended an approach of asymptomatic um, testing of children. Is that, can you, can um, one of you guys talk a little bit more about that and what that would entail? Dr. Rajapaksi, do you want me to take that one? Sure. So um, uh, frequent asymptomatic testing is one uh, method that's been employed successfully in some settings throughout the pandemic, um, both by other countries, as well as by settings like healthcare settings where asymptomatic patients are tested either before a procedure or if they're admitted to the hospital for another reason, still tested for screening. Um, because of the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and how quickly one can become infected, it needs to be very frequent. So you can't test someone 
um, you know, one week and then three weeks later, assume they still don't have SARS-CoV-2. Um, the most effective testing is anywhere between two or every seven days for kind of repeated testing and looking at repeated exposures. And so the burden on communities has been um, relatively great in terms of both the cost, getting the test turned around, and then actually the testing on the individual. And at this time, uh, most experts are not recommending repeated, you know, every two or every seven day testing for school children, because we've seen quite a bit of real world evidence, as well as scientific evidence that if we employ those other layering strategies, children can go back to school safely um, with masking and with vaccinating and with the other layering strategies that we've, um, we've, we know work. It's very helpful. Um, I think a lot of um, parents are kind of waiting for when they maybe would get a phone call or an email uh, saying that their child had been exposed at school. What does this generally look like? And would um, would children need to be tested or quarantined before they would go back? And I know that there may be some variations among states about what the practice is for this, but can you kind of elaborate on the general approach recommended by the CDC? Yeah, so it is um, certainly possible with return to school that uh, there will be cases in classroom. We know that um, in communities where there's a lot of spread in the community that we do see cases in school. Thankfully, schools don't seem to drive kind of what is happening um, in the community. Um, and so certainly, yes, uh, schools are expected to have a plan in place for how they would notify uh, families if there were to be an exposure um, in the classroom. And I would encourage uh, people to be familiar with what is recommended by their local public health um, officials, because there will be some variability. Um, certainly, uh, if a child is exposed, if they have symptoms, for sure, they should be staying home um, and getting tested. Um, as I talked about earlier, there are other respiratory viruses circulating. We're also going to be getting into flu season come fall and winter. And so it's uh, impossible to, to look at a child to you know whether they have COVID-19 or do they have some other respiratory virus. And that's why it's, testing is especially um, important um, if they have any symptoms and they should not be returning to school if they have, have symptoms. Um, the recommendations on return to school kind of uh, vary um, generally before they return, if they were having symptoms, we want them to either have a negative test and resolution of their symptoms in, in most situations. Um, for exposure, uh, there's a what we call an incubation period for, for this infection. And so people can develop symptoms anywhere, uh, generally from two to 14 days after exposure. Um, and so that's kind of the highest risk period of time. We see most people um, who are going to develop symptoms or test positive, uh, test positive within kind of three to five days of when the exposure occurred. And so there's some places that are, are recommending testing kind of during that period of time um, before deciding if someone can return to school safely or not. Excellent. Now we've reached the end of our time, but do any of you have any um, parting thoughts that you'd like to share before we, we wrap it up for today? Yeah, I can start. Um, we know kids under 12 are not yet eligible for COVID-19 vaccination, but we have seen them fall behind on their other routine childhood immunizations. And so um, I would really encourage uh, parents to talk to their primary care, care provider and make sure that their child is up to date on all their other routine vaccinations before they're looking at returning back to school. Um, because there are concerns that vaccination for other vaccine preventable illnesses like measles and whooping cough have fallen far enough that we're at risk of having um, outbreaks of those infections happen as well um, as we get kids mixing back together. So um, please do reach out to your primary care provider and make sure your child is up to date on all the other vaccines. 
I think for me, um, you know, Dr. Levy mentioned it a couple times, but multiple ways to uh, multiple layers of mitigation. Um, you know, I think about it as a layers of Swiss, Swiss cheese where, you know, the, the COVID-19 can kind of get through, but if you have multiple ways of social distancing, masking, um, obviously, you know, under the age of 12, they don't have the ability yet to, to get vaccinated, but um, that would be another another mitigation strategy. So I think we're going to try and do the best that we can. And I think that families will too, as well, to try and, you know, layer on top of layer of the different mitigation strategies so that we can keep our kids in school. Because I think the thing that we saw last year is that everybody wants our kids back in school um, as much as possible, um, socially, emotionally, and academically. So I think uh, that multiple layers would be the best thing that I could probably recommend. Yeah, I would agree. I don't have much more to add to that. You know, we know that it's very um, good and beneficial for child welfare for children to be in school. And the best way we know as medical professionals to keep them in school is these multiple ways of layering that will reduce transmission, both to children as well as to our larger communities. Um, and so encourage everybody to um, get your facts from reliable sources and continue to educate yourselves um, and uh, go to your pediatrician or other trusted medical professionals if you have questions. That's great. And I just want to um, echo on back of Dr. Rajapaksi's comments. Uh, influenza vaccinations are going to be starting soon. Um, I know in Rochester, we're very busy planning our, our immunization influenza um, school-based program. So make sure that you are talking to your healthcare provider and getting your child's influenza vaccination up to date for the coming year, because um, it may not be as mild of influenza year as we've had in past. And this is just another way to help protect your child and keep them in school. Thank you guys. Thank you everyone so much for joining us today. I'm Mr. Schrader, thanks for taking the time away from school and planning for the kids to return. You bet, my pleasure. Uh, Dr. Roger Poxy and Dr. Levy, thank you again for coming back. You guys are always fantastic at providing the latest evidence um, and guidelines for families. Thanks for having us. Thank you everyone. Remember to stay safe, get vaccinated and have a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.